Hello, everyone. That Williams guy back for yet another episode, and we're in for a special treat. We have Mr. Robbie Barkman here with us tonight, and this episode was set up by Freddie Blish. So when you have Freddie as your booking agent, that's pretty good. And uh, thank you, Freddie, for setting this up and doing the intro to to Robbie. Now, we are at a little bit of a cultural impasse here tonight because Robbie has told me that I'm not allowed to call him sir. However, being a man of the South, raised by two very influential grandmothers, Robbie, I have to apologize that there's probably going to be a few sirs that slip out. I'll try, but I... I always feel feel the presence of my grandmothers that I have to have to say, sir, ma'am. Not a problem. Okay. So how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you. How about yourself? Uh, very, very well. We are recording this on June the 20th, and I just got back from a, an Andy Stanford event that will be discussed in a future episode. But uh, that was quite an event this weekend. And um, if you would tell the audience about yourself. Um, well, I was born and raised in South Africa, uh, emigrated to the United States in 1977, and I've been here ever since. I got my citizenship five years after I got here, which is the soonest you could get citizenship, and this is my home. This is where I feel I belong. Okay. Well, what got you started in shooting and interesting your interest in firearms? Well, I was actually born into a shooting family. My mom and dad were both world-class shooters. My dad was a pistol shooter, and my mom was a small ball rifle shooter. In fact, she held a world record for a number of years for open competition. And originally, I shot uh, at that time was ISU, NRA-style shooting, free pistol. And then we heard about a fellow that was uh, doing what in those days was called combat shooting. And uh, I knew him and I went out to talk to him one day and he said, well, you should come and join our group. And of course, we didn't have the right firearms. We knew nothing about it. And he had been trained here in the United States by the FBI. So in those days, we were doing the FBI crouch. And that kind of takes me back into the history of how I got here. Sure. Um, I worked, my business was across the road from the equivalent of a Barnes and Noble. And they had a clearance table and there was a magazine on there called Cooper on Handguns. And it was 50 cents. And I went, well, it would be interesting. You need to remember another thing is that South Africa at the time was under embargo from the rest of the world. So anything American or European was very, very difficult to get a hold of. So I went ahead and bought this thing and took it home and I was reading it and I was really intrigued. I took it to the range that weekend and I was showing it to the other guys and I said, hey, these guys do a completely different style of shooting and we should go there. This guy's opening a school and he does classes and this was in the early 70s, 19, not 1870s. <laughs> so um, we kind of got together a couple of times and talked about coming over here and you know 10 12 guys in those days to do a trip to america was very very expensive and one evening i said hey you know what why don't we see if this fellow will come out here be a whole lot cheaper we could club together and do the class and then we can put more people in the class and so i wrote jeff a letter 
and he wrote back and said, absolutely, I'd love to come out. Um, you pay my airfare, you house me, feed me. And if you can arrange a safari, that would be nice. Uh, I don't think he realized how expensive safaris were at that time. So, um, so we arranged for him to come out and that was in, I believe it was either 73 or 74. And he stayed at my house and we just really hit it off. I mean, uh, Jeff was a most intriguing person. And a little side note, Jeff liked to drink whiskey. And whiskey in South Africa was an extremely expensive commodity. And the bigger thing is, it wasn't about money, it was the fact that you couldn't get it. Well, he came to the house and I poured him what we call a tart. And Jeff took the bottle and filled up the glass. And in about three or four nights, he finished the bottle off. So there was a mad, mad scramble to uh, find another bottle of whiskey for Jeff. So um, the another little side was when Jeff arrived in Johannesburg at that time, uh, the, the luggage carousel was outside and it was uh, manual. These guys would go to the plane, they'd get suitcases put on a little trolley and pull it to the uh, uh, kiosk, put the cases down, you'd identify your case and you would leave. Well, Jeff came walking from the plane and I was standing at the, the reception area. And of course, I didn't know who he was and we'd never met before, but here comes this really big guy wearing a tweed jacket and a pair of cowboy boots. So we're talking South Africa and nobody wears cowboy boots in South Africa. And he's got one leg caught in the boot. So we, in, I walked up to Mr. Cooper. He said, yeah, you must be right. He said, yes, sir. And we see, I called him, sir, because <laughs> he was a lot older than me. So um, we're standing at the luggage thing. And I thought, you know, this guy, everybody's looking at him. So I leaned over and I said, so Mr. Cooper, just so you know, your trouser leg is caught in your boot. And he said, it's not caught in my boot. I put it there. And I said, really and he said yes and I said well why and he said because it makes me look different and I thought boy we're in for a heck of a time with this guy so uh yeah that was my introduction to Jeff so he came three years in a row we brought him out for three years consecutive years and then um in in September of 1976, uh, I was captain of the South African uh, Practical Pistol Association team that went to the world shoot in Salzburg. And Jeff and Janelle were there. And of course, Jeff, uh, my wife and I had knew each other pretty well by this point. And we were standing and talking. And Jeff said, you guys should come out next year. We're opening our school. And I said, well, trip to America, that sounds like fun. So in April, we came out. And when we got, we stayed with Jeff and Janelle. At that time, they were living in a double wide mobile. They had not built the scones yet. And we were at lunch one day. And you know, little things can change your whole life. And one comment from Jeff really changed my life in a huge way. 
but I didn't realize it at the time. So we were sitting at, well, when we got there, Jeff said, well, you can't do this class. It's, it's a basic class, but you could help me teach the class if you'd like, or if you just want to shoot, that's fine. I said, no, that would be really good. I can learn how to instruct and teach. And um, so on the Wednesday, we were having lunch and Jeff made a comment and verbatim, he said, it's too bad you don't live here. I would love to bring you on staff. And I took that as a very big compliment because you need to understand Gunsight at that time was the only institution of its kind that was open to the public. And although most of the students were law enforcement or government types, um, so it was a very, very big compliment. And then I didn't think anything more of it. And without getting into a whole long story, I met another guy here in Phoenix at the time. Okay, backtrack a second, sorry. So Jeff said, the only problem is we can't employ you full time because at this point, we're not even sure how many classes a year we're going to do. But if you were here, that would be, we would bring you on. So I happened to meet a guy in the dental business here in Phoenix and he was very keen to start a lab and I had a dental lab in South Africa, a very big dental lab. And we got talking and I said, well, opening a lab and running a lab is the easy part. Getting the clients to support you is the hard part. So he said, oh, no, I have a great relationship with my dentists. And we literally on a Sunday morning laying on the floor in front of the TV in his apartment put a deal together. And I told him it all depends on one thing. I really need to make a phone call. So I called Jeff and I said, do you remember a conversation that we had at the lunch table on Wednesday? And he said, well, give me more. And I said, well, you had made an offer bringing me on staff. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, is that a real offer? And he said, absolutely. Why? And I said, well, I, I may be able to actually swing that. And he said, well, if you need me to sponsor you, I'll be happy to do it. So the fellow that I went into partnership, Rick, and I, that we canceled our trip to go to a couple of other states in the United States. And um, that Monday, we went to a lawyer and put a deal together, a contract together by sell agreement. And we went and rented a building and put money in the bank. And we did everything we needed to do to get this business relationship going. And then I went back to South Africa and I told my parents and my partner, I had a partner in the dental lab in South Africa, and everybody was like, you got to be kidding. You're going to go live in America? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's going to be really cool. So that was in April of 1977. And in September, we came back to the United States, and I've been here ever since. So in the beginning, the first couple of years, I would commute. I would lived here in Phoenix. And when Jeff had a class, I would drive up and work the class and then come back to the lab. And then in 1980, I believe it was 82, the Coopers built a house for me and a gunsmithy. And I moved up to the school and I stayed there until February of 1986. Okay. So that's basically how I got to be at Gunsight. Well, if we could backtrack a little bit, could you tell about the classes that Cooper did for, for you in South Africa? Yeah, so they were basically the 250, as we know it today. Uh, not a whole lot has changed. Um, of course, he ran the, the line himself. 
Uh, we, if I remember correctly, we only had six people in a relay, so there were two relays. And then he also did a trip down to Durban. There was another fellow running a, a club down in Durban. And Jeff went and spent, I believe it was a week with them. Uh, the classes were very basic. We didn't have any equipment other than target stands. I mean, this was in the early, early days. Uh, we were still trying to figure out what guns. That's the other thing you have to remember in South Africa, of course, with the arms embargo, you a Colt 45 was cost thousands of dollars. I mean, they were very, very expensive. And you really had a hard time getting your hands. And when I started, <laughs> my first couple of classes that we did with this guy that was trained by the FBI, I used a Ruger pistol, a 22 pistol, to what I had. Um, and then I uh, went to a Smith & Wesson K-19, and we had to reload all our own ammo. You couldn't buy ammunition, and you could not buy a progressive loading press. So I had a little Lee loading kit where you banged out the primers one at a time, mm -hmm. and then you had a little primer seating tool that you put the primers in, and you weighed every, low, uh, every powder load on a scale, and... Then there was another die you put on and you actually tapped the bullet into the casing and uh, shooting a hundred rounds on a Sunday morning was pretty intensive exercise because you made every single round count. The only fight I ever saw on the range, I mean a physical altercation, was two guys arguing over a piece of 45 brass. That's how rare, I mean, it was just very expensive in fact we made our own brass when i did get a 45 eventually was able to get my hands on both a government model and a lightweight commander and um we actually made our own brass out of 308 casings we'd cut them down and then remount the inside to thin out the case a little bit and that's how desperate we were for brass that's very interesting because that's, that's something that's just that's just something that we are here in america just can't fathom of course Recent times may make us contemplate such things, but uh, up until the last couple of years, everything's just, this is America, we can get all we want to. Yeah, right. So when I first came here, it was like being in hog heaven. I mean, I was just <laughs> shooting and I was collecting everybody else's brass. Nobody wanted their brass. And I was thinking, these guys are nuts. This is a gold mine. And so I bought a progressive loader and uh, I was loading and loading and loading until finally I figured out one day that actually cheaper just to buy ammo in bulk than it is to reload it and save me a whole lot of time. So, um, but that's part of coming to live in America. Your lifestyle changes. <laughs> now, did Mr. Cooper bring firearms with him to conduct this training or did he use firearms provided by no, the students? We, we had to supply a gun for him. So actually, that's not true. The second and third classes, he did bring his own. He did bring his own. So South Africa, for a period, had a pretty cool system that if you wanted to bring a firearm into the country, um, including a handgun, you would declare it at customs and they would issue you a permit. And it was a temporary permit for the importation of a firearm. And when you left the country, you had to get it stamped that you had left the country with a gun. They're big concern was that you would leave the firearm there and a lot of people did that deliberately they would go over with guns and then sell them and then not say anything at customs just leave and so eventually the government put a stop to that unfortunately you know i have a 
Arabism, if you will, um, there's about 2% of the people in every single endeavor, doesn't matter what it is, 2% of the people will screw it up for everybody else. <laughs> and they did that with the firearms. Uh, these guys would bring three, four, five guns and they would sell them for thousands of rand and then they would come back to the States without the guns. So there's all these unregistered firearms in South Africa because every gun there was registered. They didn't register you, they registered the firearm to you. So... Yeah, became a really big problem. And unfortunately, they couldn't do it. But Jeff did. He brought he brought guns, uh, a pistol, both the second and third. And the first time we actually borrowed a pistol from a fellow that had a couple of actually had a couple of Armand Swenson pistols. I'm telling you, this was the infancy <laughs> of this thing, a custom pistol. We spent everybody spent an hour ooing and eyeing over this Armand Swenson pistol. I mean, it was state of the art. Nobody had ever seen a customized pistol before. Cool. So, so you were in the South African Defense Forces, is that correct? I was for 11 and a half years. Yeah. What, what did you do in that? So um, originally when I went in, I was at one special services battalion, and then I was assigned to an infantry battalion or infantry regiment, as we call them. And then in about the fourth year, I went to a group called Hunter Group, which was a counterinsurgency operations, uh, like uh, um, kind of like your special forces, but nowhere sophisticated. The South African army, you need to understand, back in the 70s was, here's a rifle, here's a couple of magazines and a water canteen. This is your area of operation. Don't come back until you're either out of food or out of ammunition. Uh, it was very basic. We didn't have helicopters. We didn't have night vision equipment. We didn't have ballistic jackets. We, it was really a man-on-man -man type of a deal, not very sophisticated and tough. It was hard. Um, I wish I was in the condition now that I was then. But um, So I was in for 11 and a half years, and uh, right after the Angolan Civil War in which we participated, um, I was promoted to a company sergeant major, and when I left uh, South Africa to come to America, that was my last rank in the South African Army. Interesting, interesting. Um, what were the early days at Gunsight like? Um, you know, <laughs> physically, Gunsight's changed, and physically, Gunsight changed even in the early days. There was continually progress. You know, there was a second fun house. Um, there was a north range and then a south range, which was built when I was there. The firebox was built when I was there. The scrambler was built when I was there. Um, I saw a lot of people come and go. People typically didn't stay at Gunsight very long. Um, the rotating guys did. But living at Gunsight was pretty tough. Jeff was pretty demanding. Uh, you were considered, you were basically in Jeff's army and you were on call 24-7. And that led to a little bit of conflict with he and I in the early days and we were able to sort it out pretty quickly. And as I said, I had a little bit different relationship with Jeff. Um, I didn't need the job was part of it. So I didn't have to put up with a whole lot 
And Jeff and I had both had a very keen interest in history and we would sit at the dinner table and we would literally take an opposing position deliberately and just debate it and we would get really heated. And Janelle would sit there and laugh and she'd say, you guys, you know, this is just a discussion. And then we would shake hands and I'd go over to my house and the next morning everything was back to normal again. It was a very <laughs> interesting time. Um, and Jeff, he could have a sense of humor, but it depended what it is. I'll give you a really good example. It's one of my favorite sure. stories about Jeff Cooper and myself. It's the only time I think Jeff really, really got mad at me. So this was in the middle of the Argentinian War. And <laughs> I came over to the Scons for dinner, and I ate most of my dinners at the Scons, per Jeff's instructions. And... Um, I walked in and Jeff had come up from the armory where he watched the news every evening. And he said, well, you know, the Argentinians this and the British that. And I said, well, you know, I just was listening to the radio on my way over here and they've agreed on a truce. And of course, Jeff sits up and he goes, a truce? I didn't hear that. And I said, yeah. So the Argentinians have agreed to leave the, the island on Two conditions and uh, Jeff goes well, well what are the conditions and I said well number one they'd be allowed a safe passage out of there with all their equipment and number two that each Argentinian soldier be allowed to take a sheep as a war bride <laughs> Janelle started laughing and Jeff got mad I mean <laughs> really really mad at me and he said, oh, I thought we were trying to make a point here. And that was the end of that discussion. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> it's one of my favorite things. One of the few times I was able to actually get under Jeff's skin. So. <laughs> All right. Um, so you were the first full-time gunsmith at Gunsight, correct? Yes. So there was a young fellow before me that was supposed to come on and I actually met him. In fact, we've done business together even when I had Robar in just a few years ago. But um, for some reason, there was some, I don't know if there was a falling out, but all of a sudden he and his dad, because he was just a kid at the time, um, they just disappeared. And they, the Coopers had already poured a concrete pad where they were going to build the gunsmithy. And that's basically where they built my house, the house and the gunsmithy that I eventually moved into. So, uh, yes, actually on site, full time. Yeah, I was the first one. All right. Well, what can you tell us about the development of the scout rifle? Uh, one of Jeff's favorite projects. So he was, Jeff wanted a small rifle that was basically a multi-role rifle. And a fella in Prescott had actually built Scout 1 for him. And I believe that was in a Remington 600 action. And I built Scout 2, which was on a Seiko stock, um, a Seiko action, a Schneider barrel. And then I built the, uh, the ammo retention device in the butt stock and the forward mount. Um, we didn't have a forward mount at that time. And so we actually made one by using a 
I believe it was a weaver rail and actually machined some blocks to go on the barrel and on the action. So it spanned the front screw holes on the action onto the barrel. And Jeff had come up with a Burris scope. It was this little Burris long eye relief scope. And that basically was Scout 2. That was the development of that. His big thing was to build the fire plug, which was a, um, I forget the caliber now offhand but so scout two was a 308 and so was scout one and then after i left i believe he built another well then i think uh um, was it h and k that came out with the scout rifle uh steyer did was steyer it was steyer correct yeah correct steyer so um, yeah, I mean, we experimented a lot with sites, with backup sites, um, fold-down sites for the rear site. Uh, we actually used a tip-down peep site at the back. On the two holes on the back of the receiver was a great place to put a peep site. Um, made an iron site from scratch. We actually built the iron site and put it on the gun. And uh, yeah, that was a big project for Jeff. He was... He was very, Jeff was a rifleman at heart. He loved rifles. A pistol was his work tool, but the rifle was his love, at least from my perspective. His engagement with me was always about the absolute love affair with rifles. Okay, well, I'm going to ask a, what might be a controversial question. Okay. And it's going to, going to get to be one of those alternative history discussions as well. <laughs> If Mr. Cooper was around today with the technology that is available now, such as low power variable optics, would he build the scout rifle again or would he build something, say, using the one to eight scope on it without the need for the long eye relief? Oh, wow. Okay. Based on my association with Jeff, I believe he would still go with the long eye relief. His philosophy was the rifle should come up really, really quickly and you should be able to get a sight picture really, really quickly. So the problem with conventionally mounted scopes, as you know, head position becomes critical. And you've got parallax to deal with. You've got eye relief, depending on your vision, uh, how you, your face welds to the stock, Everybody's different. Our physical, our body geography is different. And he felt that the forward scope alleviated a lot of the mechanics of trying to get target acquisition through the device. So I, it's a good question. Of course, nobody really knows the answer. I would be inclined to say he'd probably stay with the forward mounted system. Okay. All right. I won't debate that because we can't debate that with him. I just have always, no. yeah, I've just well, wondered about you, you may get an opportunity here in the future. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's just, if you look at when the scout rifle was developed and the technology that was available then, okay, that mm-hmm. was forward thinking, you know, using the scope mount, everything, the low powered long hour relief scope. Well, a modern red dot kind of does the same thing. Okay, well, red anyway. dot's a whole different proposition. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that. My head was still stuck on actual 
scopes. Um, wow, that's that actually throws a whole new dynamic at that thing. I, I don't know. I Jeff Jeff was an innovator. I think the greatest strength that Jeff Cooper had and Clint Smith are the two most innovative people I've ever met in the gun industry. Uh, and Louis Louis Auerbach was very innovative too. Um, I believe, I sincerely believe that Jeff would take a really hard look at that. But I have to throw something in there. Jeff had a yes. thing about anything that either ran on batteries mm -hmm. or relied on a foreign uh, energy source. Okay. He had a thing about that. And he, he would always say, you know that that thing will stop working when you really need it. You better have a plan B, which is why he wanted iron sights on the scout rifle. So that if the scope stopped working, as they do, uh, you would still have a sight system. All right. Um, another product development question, the low mount thumb safety for the 1911. Could you talk about his development? Um, yeah, you know, we made the first ones. Uh, it was a wax casting. And uh, as I said, I was in the dental lab. And one of the things we cast was stainless steel for partial uh, partials. They call them skeletons. And so I would save all the buttons, the, the uh, excess metal, because you couldn't melt it again and meet the ADA standard. Um, but there was no reason you couldn't use it to make yeah. safeties, which I did. I made a lot. <laughs> so, but it was very tedious because every one of them had to be hand finished because they came out of a casting. Um, and so you had to literally sit and file off the little bubbles and uh, take a, a checkering file and clean up the striations on the top of the safety lever and then you'd have to fit it and they were never completely round so you'd have to sit and basically lap these things into a hardened piece of steel with a precision hole drilled in it um i don't remember who oh no you know what i have to go back a step i did make the lower safeties but in actual fact the idea came from armin swenson Armin Swenson had an ambidextrous safety, uh -huh. and I believe it was a lowered safety, but you would have to check that. I, it's a long time ago. He was quite a fellow, Armin Swenson. He was a very, very nice man. I actually got to spend the day with him in his shop, and most things, I could see why he and Jeff were buds. All right. Um, can we also talk about the development of the ghost ring site for the shotgun? So the ghost ring site really, again, was a Cooper idea. Um, he wanted a site that came up very, very quickly, and you didn't have to hunt for it. So what he came up with was a site that I believe was made by Marbles, if I remember correctly. And it was a peep site, actually, for a target rifle. And the profile of the base actually fit a Remington 870 pretty well, right at the back where the curve starts. And we unscrewed the actual peep and the, uh, the metal band that was threaded that you screwed the peep into made a perfect ghost ring. 
So it was a cheap, quick way of getting a ghost ring. And the front sights I actually made from steel. We bought uh, bar stock, put them in the mill, and actually worked in a couple of different designs. And then I ended up making a lot of those, a lot of shotguns out there with that front sight on them. And then um, a young fellow by the name of Steve Wickett came out with a steel ghost ring that was adjustable. And so we started using those. Is, so that, that, the, sorry. is, that, is that the MMS, MMC site? No, no. Steve Wickett actually made these. I don't know what ever happened to him. I lost contact with him many, many years ago. But then MMC came out with one. And um, there's been a couple of other manufacturers that have come out with the ghost ring. I'm not really familiar with them. Um, but that's how the ghost ring started, was using that old uh, Michael site. Excellent. All right. I've heard it said that... Uh... One of the reasons Gunsight adapted the tactical reload of the 1911 magazine was to keep from dropping the magazines on the pea gravel and damage them. Is that correct? You know, I've heard that story recently. I never heard that story when I was living at Gunsight. I am not sure where that came from, but I can tell you that we always had a piece of um, AstroTurf at like the seven meter line, the 10 meter line, 15, 25 and 50. And that's where you would drop your magazines. And it was a dirt range. And Jeff was cognizant of the fact that dirt would get in the magazines. But I don't ever remember him saying that a tactical reload's got anything to do with dropping the magazine. A tactical reload was to retain what little bit of ammunition was left in those magazines because you didn't know if you were going to run out. Right. Now, do you have any good stories about Mr. Cooper and his ATV? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, you know, in his younger days, Jeff used to race cars. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that. Um, yes. He, he was pretty big in the racing circuit. And he, we had, in those days at Gunsight, we had the three-wheel Hondas. It was before the four-wheelers came out. And Jeff used to just drive everywhere like a bat out of hell on that thing. And, uh, you know, <laughs> let's just say that one evening, Jeff was coming down to the range. He was starting a night shoot or flashlight, flashlight drills. And Jeff miscalculated where the wall was on the range. And he and the bike and the wall had a meeting of the ways. And so we had to send him, him home on his bike, which now had a speed wobble. And then another time he lost it on, a, on the curve right below the South Range. There's a steep, there used to be a steep turn. I don't know if it's still there. And there was a juniper bush. And Jeff ended up in the juniper bush. Um, there were a number of incidents with Jeff and the ATV. Yeah, he, he loved that thing. He would just go everywhere. We all did. I mean, that was our mode of transportation on the ranch. Did he like to shoot steel from his ATV? He did. He actually had some targets set up at the split where the one went to the, um, uh, not the fun house, the, um, the newer simulator. I can't remember what it's called now. 
there was a fork in the road and he actually had the ops manager at that time. I think it was when either Russ or Clint were there, put up a couple of steels and he would drive by and you could hear him. You'd hear the bike in the distance and you'd hear pow, pow, pow. And yeah, he did. He used to shoot at the steels from his bike. Well, speaking of infamous events at Gunside, I've heard a little story about involving you and a certain chicken. Oh, man. <laughs> of all my years at Gunside, that's what everybody remembers, is the stupid rooster. Actually, there were two of them, just so you know. Okay. So the first one, so the Coopers had a chicken coop. And the chicken coop was right next to the gunsmithy. And my house was part of the same building. And my bedroom window faced the chicken coop. And every night they would herd the chickens back into the enclosure because of the coyotes they were, and bobcats. So, I mean, we had a lot of wildlife in that area. It was very isolated at that time. Mm -hmm. And except for the rooster. The rooster decided the big juniper tree right outside my window would be an excellent place to roost. And then he started crowing at about 2, 2.30 in the morning. And this went on for weeks. And finally, one morning at roll call, as Jeff called it, I said, you know, I, we need to do something about locking the rooster up at night because he keeps waking me up. He cannot, not impossible, it's not possible to get a night's sleep. And Janelle said, well, I'll have um, uh, Keith, Russ showers his son, make sure he gets him in. Well, I happened to be standing on the back patio of the shop one afternoon, and Keith was herding the chickens into the coop, and he tried to herd the rooster in, and the rooster chased him. It actually attacked him. <laughs> well, needless to say, the rooster was in the tree. And the next morning, it woke me up, and I went to roll call, and... Um, Janelle mentioned that, well, Keith had tried to corner the rooster and get him in the thing. And I said, yeah, I watched it. The rooster actually attacked him. And Jeff made a comment that, well, I guess you're going to have to do what you have to do. And I took that to mean terminate the rooster. <laughs> so uh, 2, 2.30 in the morning, the rooster started his crowing thing, and I finally got the hell in with it. I got my shotgun and a flashlight, and I went out there and shot the rooster right out of the tree. And the next morning at roll call, I'm on my way over to the sconce, and I thought, you know, I really hope I understood what Jeff said, because I could be in a lot of trouble right now. And I walked in, and Jeff was sitting at the kitchen table, and he goes, he looks up, and he always used to call me Maestro. I don't know where he ever got that from, but he never, ever called me by my name. He always called me Maestro. So he goes, well, Maestro, I have to assume that we're now minus one rooster. And I said, yes, sir, the noise has been terminated. And Janelle started crying, and I felt so bad. And anyway, a couple of months later, they went and got another rooster. And I'll be damned if the same thing didn't happen. So we're at the staff meeting one morning and I told Jeff and Janelle, I said, well, you know, now we got the same problem we had a little while back and I don't know what to do about it. And Jeff said, well, you know, animals disappear. And so this was his subtle way of saying, take care of the problem. So there were two guys staying with me, two of the other instructors. And 
Uh, let's just say it involved a couple of bottles of wine and some bravado talk. And we decided we were going to assassinate the rooster. So we took a 22 and a flashlight and Tim, one of the instructors held a flashlight and Monty, one of the other guys held a bottle of wine. <laughs> and we went outside and I took a shot at this rooster and it didn't kill him. And he flew out of the tree and that's dark. Okay. okay. And the Coopers always left the garage door open, a double roll up door and the lights on so that if you needed to go over there, you could go in through the back door. Well, this rooster heads for the light. And I'm thinking, oh, crap, he's headed right for the Cooper's house. Here we are chasing after this thing in the dark. And the rooster runs into the garage. And we stop. And about two minutes later, the rooster comes running out and he heads right back to the shop again. And right about the time we turn around and start chasing after the rooster, the garage door starts closing. So Jeff had just, we literally missed each other by seconds. Well, we cornered the rooster and took care of him. And I actually have a picture of it uh, that Louis Auerbach took the next morning. He said, oh, I heard there was some adventure here last night. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's the story of the rooster. I actually sent the picture to Freddie, but I, I don't know if he got it. I never heard from him. He was up at gunfight this week. So, um, yeah, it was a very proud, you know, actually, I can, if you'd like to see it, I, I love that picture because Louis was so proud of that thing. <laughs> he, he actually is the one who took the picture and then gave it to me. Okay. And I've had it ever since. And as one of my fondest memories of Louis, I don't know if you can, if you can see that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, so that's the famous <laughs> sniper rifle. <laughs> and the Cooper second rooster. So we didn't have a chicken adventure after that. That kind of put an end to the rooster. <laughs> I grew up on what was my grandfather's dairy. Uh, he died just before my birth and my uncle ran beef cattle on it. And my father decided one time to turn a bunch of chickens loose on it. And of course, chickens do what chickens do. And uh, every now and then we'd have have a hen hatch out a bunch of eggs and there'd be roosters in it and as they get up to size you can start telling the difference between the roosters and the hens uh one of my jobs was to chase the roosters until they were about to collapse from exhaustion and we would catch them and put them in a pen and a an old friend that used to help my uncle harness race the, big popular back home uh would come get the roosters and they would disappear and i have no idea whether they wound up in cookpots <laughs> or, or whatever but uh those were the fun days of youth oh yeah De dealing, oh. With, dealing with all those and, and you talked about the rooster attacking the young lad I, I have experienced that it is not fun no they are actually quite vicious i mean they uh they will go for you yes they so, will and he was a little kid you know, so the rooster's a lot bigger to him than an adult. Yeah, they, they can they can pack a wallop. Oh yeah, they, they charge and come. Purse. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, speaking of playing with chickens, I hear there was an incident involving your plane and a train. Oh, yeah. So, is there a statute of limitations on FAA rules? <laughs> Uh, we, you can change the names to protect the innocent. 
Jeff loved to go with me in the plane. He would he would come up about once every month when I was in the shop, and he'd go, "Are you really busy?" And I would go, "No." And he'd say, well, "How'd you like to go fly?" And we would go to the airport. Well, I actually kept my plane part of the time at gunsight. They used to have a dirt strip, and I would keep the plane at gunsight, and we'd go jump in the plane, and we would just tool around and. Um, between Polden and Ash Fork is the Great Chino Wash. It's a couple miles wide. And down in the wash, the Chino Wash, is a railroad track. And I believe it went to Flagstaff. I'm not sure about that. But it was very open. There was literally no trees or anything. And you could, one could fly very low. And uh, let's just say that we had a couple, well, I've heard there were some engagements between an aircraft and a train. And um, <laughs> yeah, I think we should probably move on. <laughs> All right. Well, what stories do you have about Louis Auerbuck you'd be willing to share? Louis, Louis, Louis. I, Louis was a most interesting person. Louis was an anomaly. You know, one of the things that I didn't know for many years about Louis, and Louis and I became very, very close friends. We actually met at Gunsight, so you know I didn't know him in South Africa. He told me that he knew who I was because I was president of the National Association, but I had never met him. He lived in Kimberley, which is a long way from Johannesburg. It was right between Johannesburg and Cape Town. And Louis turns out that Louis had a natural gift for music, and he was actually a, the lead violinist for a symphony, a uh, um, orchestra. I never knew. So he would never talk about it. And uh, when Lee, his significant other, and I went to Israel to bury him, she said, yeah, he had some kind of a falling out put the violin in the case, walked out of the orchestra and never, ever touched that thing again. And nobody knows what happened. So there was that aspect of Louis. He was also the editor of a big motorcycle magazine in South Africa. He was extremely well-read. He was very articulate, very, very dry sense of humor. Um, he, Louis was Mr. Shotgun. I tell you, he was a major developer of the shotgun. Um, shotgun started at gun site and the very first person Jeff engaged to teach or come up with a curriculum was a fellow by the name of John Satterwhite. And John Satterwhite was an Olympic trap shooter, trap or skeet. And he and Jeff butted heads almost immediately because John wanted to shoot clays and Jeff wanted to shoot humanoid targets. And John would go, no, that's not what the shotgun's for. And Jeff would go, we are using it as a defensive tool. Um, people don't fly through the air at 100 miles an hour. They will come running at you, and we need to use targets. And so that relationship did not last very long. And then um, Clint Smith came on board at that time, or was on board at that time. And Clint actually developed the firebox or built the firebox. And the scrambler, Clint's biggest thing was the scrambler. That is still, to this day, I think, one of the best ranges they've got at Gunsight. 
it truly does test your ability to deploy a firearm. And so Louis started writing. He, as you know, he's written a number of books. He went on the road. Um, like most people that leave gun sight, he was on the no-go list for a long time. And then he and Jeff patched up their relationship and they actually became pretty close friends. And Jeff actually wrote the uh, foreword to one or two of Louis's books. And I think Louis actually wrote something for Jeff, if I remember correctly. Um, he was a very cool guy. Uh, Louis did not get rattled very easily. Um, he was a very good friend, I can tell you that. And if you had the privilege of being in one of his classes, so here's what I think of Louis as an instructor. Louis was absolutely without a doubt, without any exceptions, the best one-on-one -on -one instructor I have ever met. He could look at a student and sum him up in two minutes and tell you what this guy was going to do or not going to do or what the problem was. And if somebody was having a problem, Lou would stand and he would look at them, cock his head to one side, and then he'd walk up to him and go, <laughs> his favorite expression. Okay, Slick, here's what we're going to do. And he would get them sorted out. Uh, I mean, he had an uncanny knack for doing that. From a, sh a presenting to a group of people, it'd be very, very hard to beat Clint Smith. Clint is a very dynamic speaker, very knowledgeable, very, very passionate about what he does. They were opposite ends of the spectrum. Louis was very soft-spoken, didn't like crowds. The first time Louis ran a range is when I told him I couldn't be on the range in the afternoon because Mr. Cooper wanted me to do something and he was going to have to run the range. And he was beside himself. He did not want to go stand in front of that group of students. And that's how Louis actually got his start in, in range mastering. Interesting. Any other stories about any of the personalities of that era that you'd be willing to share? Oh, lots of good people. I mean, that's the thing about gun sight. You know, the gun fraternity on a professional level are really good people. I mean, they are typically very driven. They're A-type personalities. Um, they're passionate about what they do. They believe in what they do. Um, they're fun to be around. Um, the retail business, the gun side, the customer side, couldn't wait to get out of that. They are. So, but the professional people are just that. They're very professional. And I had the honor of working with a lot of those people. I got to meet Bill Ruger. In fact, he came in my shop and spent about three hours with me one afternoon because he knew Mr. Cooper. He and uh, Jeff were big buds. Armin Swenson, um, you name a big name in the industry, and I've probably met them or done business with them. Or Gail McMillan, who is another man who changed my life. Uh, taught me to build rifles, probably one of the most honorable men I've ever met in my life. Um, so yeah, um, probably the funniest, well, tragically funny story involved one of the ops managers that came after Clint. Um, so the Coopers had a cat and Jeff loved this cat. 
cat was always on Jeff's lap and it would jump up and sit on the table next to Jeff while he was eating. One day uh, they had a couple of cats that lived up in the barn uh, be- to keep the rodents and stuff down. And one day the uh, stray moved in that looked very much like the Cooper's cat. So the Cooper's cat's name was Fiji. And this stray cat or new cat it was beating up the barn cat. So Jeff at the staff meeting said, okay, uh, we need to get rid of the stray. Um, I'm putting out a contract on him, which means if you see him, take care of him. And a couple of days went by, and then one of the instructors from Texas was staying at Russ's house. The Coopers had built the sconce by this time, and the ops manager was living in the double white that was formerly the Coopers house. And he was on his way from the barn back to the house, this other instructor from Texas, his name was Bill. And he said to Russ, hey, that stray is in the juniper tree right outside. So Russ got his shotgun and a flashlight and he went out there and shot the cat, picked him up and went and threw him in the dumpster. <laughs> so the next morning, Russ knocks on my door and he says, hey, Ravi, I need you to come and take a look at something. And I said, Okay, so I went out with him and went over to the, to the, it was actually a big trailer that all the garbage went and got taken to the dump. And he says, I need you to climb up and take a look inside the dumpster. And so I climb up and there's Fidget, minus most of his head. And Russ said, is it who I think it is? And I said, yeah, it's Fidget. And poor Russ turned absolutely white. So about a half an hour later, we're up at the classroom waiting for the students to finish assembling and waiting for Jeff to come. And Jeff is late and he would never late. Jeff was always everything right to the minute. Well, Jeff comes riding up on his three-wheeler and he uh, says, uh, hey, any of you guys seen Fidget? (laughs) and Russ goes yes sir I think we have a problem and Jeff says oh yeah and he says yes if you'd come with me and the two of them go off to the dumpster and Jeff climbs up and he came back to his ATV and he said to me "Uh, go ahead and do the morning lecture and he took off we didn't see Jeff for two days after that I mean he was absolutely heartbroken over this cat and it's just one of those stories that sticks out because it was such a dramatic thing. Jeff Cooper, this guy that could demolish the world if he wanted to, is that torn up over a cat. But, you know, uh, your pets become part of your family. So I get it. I mean, I understand right. it. It was just such an anomaly with Jeff being who he was and seeing that. Uh, actually showed that he had a very human side to him because Jeff was always a tough guy, you know, he's very unemotional. Right. Except yeah, for Janelle. He always treated Janelle with a lot of deference. As he should. Uh, is there a story about Louis Arabuck and a duck pond? <laughs> Me and Freddie, Freddie, Freddie and I need to have a chat. Freddie talks to us. <laughs> 
to Louis. <laughs> Louis. Oh, oh. The now, now, see, here, here's the thing, though, is that when Freddie does his episode, you get to set him up with a bunch of questions. Oh, I will. I will. <laughs> so, no. So the Coopers had a duck pond. The duck pond was between the chicken house and the scones, the Coopers' house. And why they had the ducks actually is a good question. I can't answer that question, but they did. And this thing, it was pretty big. I mean, it was like a, you know, a mid-sized swimming pool. It was round. And <laughs> ducks being ducks, you know, they swim and they poop where they mm-hmm. swim. And after a couple of months, this thing was rank. I mean, in the summertime when it would get hot, it would just stink to high heaven. And Louis comes over to the shop one day and he sits down and he, he always called me Robar. He never, ever called me by my name. He always called me Robar. He said, Robar, I'm really pissed. And I said, what's the matter? He said, well, the Coopers want me to come in on Saturday and clean the duck pond. And I said, you got to be kidding. And he said, no. Well, he did. He came in and he cleaned the duck pond, but he was never, ever very happy about it at all. But what was funny, a, a different, on the same subject of the duck pond, I had a dog who was a cross German shepherd, Labrador. It was a big black German shepherd is what he looked like. And he used to go lay in that duck pond to cool off. And then he'd come back to the house and want to come inside. And there's no way in hell I would let him in the house. I mean, he stank to high heaven. And But every afternoon, he would go jump in the duck pond. He never, ever disturbed the ducks, uh, totally ignored them. But he would go bathe in this, basically, what was a cesspool. It was disgusting. So, yeah, that... Uh, Louis never forgot that. He would mention it for many years later. He would say, yeah, I like my a little adventure cleaning the duck pond. <laughs> How does one clean a duck pond? Very carefully. <laughs> so, you know, I actually don't know. I didn't actually see him do it. I just know that he did. I think I was gone that week. And so I lived, I would there was a period that I would live at the school during the week and then come back to Phoenix on the weekends. Um, And I think it was a weekend I was here in Phoenix because I came in Monday morning and the ducks were all swimming in this very nice clean pool and Louis was not happy. He was a very unhappy camper for a long time about that. Oh, is there a story about his motorcycle getting crushed when he left South Africa? Oh, yeah. Okay. So Louis was a very independent guy and rules didn't always apply to Louis or so he thought. So Louis, as I said, was the editor of a motorcycle magazine in South Africa. And he had a Honda Goldwing fully outfitted with beautiful. I mean, he showed me pictures of it. It's actually hard to imagine Louis, that little guy on that big motorcycle, but be that as may, he decided he was going to bring it to America. And he comes into the shop one day and he says, well, I have to go to Phoenix. And I said, oh, okay, what's up? And he said, well, I got a call from customs and they have my motorcycle and they will not release it because it doesn't have emissions. And the problem is he brought it in through California. And so the state of California 
demanded that it have emissions, but they wouldn't let him take it out of the facility to go get the emissions put on. So basically he was between a rock and a hard place. So finally they told him, they said, well, you can do one of two things. You can ship the bike back to South Africa because it never leaves the bonded area that way, or we can crash it. And Louis said, well, I don't have the money to send it back and there's no point. I'm living here in America now. So he, you have the option. I don't know if you know this, but if they confiscate firearms or a vehicle or anything, you have the right to be there when they destroy it. And Louis exercised that right. And he came back and he was pretty distraught. So yeah, they put it in this huge press thing and just basically crushed the shit out of it. Well, a couple of months later, he says, I'm going to bring my guns from South Africa. And I said, you know, you better make sure you have all ATF forms because there's certain firearms you're not allowed to bring back into the country. Like my Ruger 22 pistol, I couldn't bring it back because it had been exported. And apparently once a firearm is exported, you cannot bring it back. Okay. No, I've got a guy with a firearms license who will get the guns for me. And I said, no, you have to have these forms. I know because I've been through it. No, it's all taken care of. Okay. <laughs> Louis gets a call from US Customs. Well, we've seized, I think there were like eight guns, if I remember correctly. We've seized these firearms. Uh, you don't have the paperwork for them. They cannot clear customs. We are going to destroy them. You have the right to come down or the right to be there when they get destroyed. <coughs> Excuse me. So Louis comes to Phoenix and they put them in a bandsaw and they cut them all up. That was basically the two instances that caused Louis to passionately hate the American government. Passionately. In fact, he said, when I die, I do not want to be buried in this country and I don't want to be buried in South Africa. So he and I had always joked that when we retired, we were going to go to Costa Rica or somewhere down South America and sit on the beach and weave palm frond hats for the tourists and drink pina coladas. I mean, that was always our joke about when we retire. Mm -hmm. So when Louis died, Louis had told Lee, because he knew what was coming, when I'm dead, you cremate me and you throw my ashes in the dumpster behind the Safeway. And I told Lee, I said, no, absolutely not going to happen. We will give him a proper burial. Well, then the hunt started. Where are we going to take his ashes? So, of course, my first thing is let's go to Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful country. I've been there a couple of times, scuba diving. And they would not let his ashes into the country. So she tried 12, 13, 14 different countries that all had beaches where it was warm. And you cannot take human remains in there, even if they cremated. So finally, I said, you know, I know he didn't practice, but Louis came from a Jewish family. How about Israel? So she calls the Israeli embassy in Los Angeles and they go, yeah, sure. As long as it's not a body, the ashes have to be in a, in a vessel that can be x-rayed for security. And the weirdest thing was they required that you carry it on. You're not allowed to put it in the hold. 
don't ask me what the reasoning is. I have no idea. So that's how we ended up going to Israel and burying Louis in Israel. We, the next hurdle we ran into, of course, you know, Louis committed suicide, right? Mm -hmm. So by Jewish law, you cannot be buried in a Jewish cemetery if you've committed suicide. And the second slam against him was the fact that he had a tattoo. So he defiled his body. So they would not accept his ashes. And he got cremated. So no, no. Mm -hmm. Your body has to be complete when it's buried. <laughs> so finally, Lee finds a cemetery that is non-denominational. And of course, for the right amount of money, they'll be happy to bury Louis. So we get on a plane, we go over there, and they've got this little hole dug in the corner of the cemetery and put these ashes in there, the urn in there, and cover it up, and they put the little tombstone thing on top. And the guy that runs the cemetery says, so what did your friend do? And Lee says to him, well, he was a firearms instructor. And the guy goes, oh, he'll love it here because we're only a half a mile from the border, the Gaza, and every night there's gunfire. <laughs> so he's going to be really happy here. So, and I said, yeah, Louis will jump out of this thing and tell him they're doing it wrong. So I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's how Louis ended up in in israel he he had a visceral hatred for the american government because of the guns and the motorcycle but you know in a way it was his own fault yeah but he didn't want to hear that so uh, i guess to a certain extent we're all that way yeah yes uh, i think i think things are we're becoming very very um polarized in this country which is very sad and will lead to bigger and not good things um i know there's a controversial period in gunsight in which it was sold to richard g i know a lot of the gunsight people from the original era won't even say his name and i've heard different stories about how all the transaction went went down and everything i just wondered if you have anything you would offer about that uh. So, yeah, in actual fact, I was kind of on the fringe of that thing, um, not involved in it, but the people involved uh, were staying at our house when that whole thing went down. So initially what happened, uh, do you know Clint Smith? I know of him, but I don't know him. Okay, so Clint, when he left Gunsight, he went to work for a movie star as their security of their security and then he started uh his road show just like louis so he went on the road it was called international training consultants and he was eventually sponsored by a gentleman in florida a very very wealthy businessman from florida who would hire clint literally for the year to go teach police departments so it was free to the department and this guy paid clint to do the classes. So it was a nice arrangement for Clint. Well, eventually, let's just call him George. So George says to Clint, you know, we really need a fixed base of operations. So they start looking around at a place for the school and Clint eventually says to George, you know, I know Mr. Cooper is ready to retire, wants to retire. Why don't we approach him? School's already there. 
Um, so Mr. Matthews, oops. So George comes to Phoenix with Clint and uh, Mr. Matthews makes arrangements to go up to see Jeff and he drives up there and he and Jeff meet and he says Jeff is very cordial and very friendly and she gave him a tour of the ranch and everything. And then the conversation turned a little ugly because Jeff said to George, who's going to run your operation? And George says, Clint Smith. Well, that put an end to the whole thing right there. So at this point, Jeff and Clint were still not on speaking terms because Clint left the school. So anybody that left the school, you had to work at reestablishing a relationship. It took me about eight years to reestablish my relationship with Jeff. Um, well, the next thing I hear is that Jeff has called Bruce Nelson down in Tucson and said, hey, how would you like to buy the school? And apparently, and this part's hearsay, apparently Bruce turned him down. He said, no, I'm retired. I make holsters. I like what I'm doing. I don't know anything about running a school. No, I'm not interested. Now, how the Rich G part of the scenario came into the picture. I'm actually not sure. I'm not privy to that. But the next thing I hear is that Rich G and Jeff have put a deal together. Now I know Rich G. He was in the, I was his instructor and both his 250 and his 499. And we actually had a relationship, you know, French, I wouldn't call it a tight friendship, but we would visit when I'd come to Phoenix, we go say hi to him. He worked as a pharmacist at a pharmacy downtown Phoenix. And the next thing, Rich G's buying the school. And I'm like, wow, I, it's hard to believe. But that precipitated George to take part of a ranch that he owned down in Texas, in Coville, outside of Coville, in Mountain Home. And he allocated, I think it was like five or 600 acres fenced it off because it was actually a game ranch fenced it off and built the ranges for clint and so clint moved in there and he basically rented that property from from george and that's where thunder ranch was for about 10 years which is when i was associated with clint teaching down there and then clint and heidi moved to oregon and um well, then the rest of the Rich G thing, of course, as everybody knows the story, basically ran the place into the ground. Um, so doesn't surprise me. I mean, how I still would like to know how he came into the picture, because that part I don't know. Okay. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Does a rifle barrel need a break-in? <laughs> Depends who you talk to. So I was trained by Gail McMillan, who is basically the father of the modern sniper rifle. So Gail believed that it did. And we talked about it one day. And I said, so what exactly are we doing by breaking this rifle? And Gail made a very interesting observation. He said, the shooter is learning his gun. And I went, okay, I get it. So does it actually do anything? And the truth of the matter is, I don't know. It's been a subject 
a controversial subject for a long time. I personally think that there may, may be some benefit to it, um, that it physically does anything, I really don't know. It's the same as the cold shot saga, which is exactly what it is. Uh, does a cold shot go to a different point of impact than a barrel that's already been shot or warmed up? So uh, I think it depends on the barrel. It depends on the stiffness of the barrel, how big the barrel, you know, how the diameter of the barrel, what I know you're using. Was it a stable platform for each of those shots? And how do you determine that? Because when you as a person are holding the gun, I would put it to you that it's physically impossible to hold it exactly the same way every time. So from a scientific level, we don't know. Um, I don't have an answer for you. Okay. Uh, how did you learn about the MP3 coding? <laughs> that damn Freddie Blish. <laughs> <laughs> so actually on the toilet, if you want the short answer. So we, it, we, when we first started the business um, and I was just starting to get into the plating business, I used to buy all my chemistry for an old gentleman by the name of Russ, who was just a super nice old guy. And Russ would always show up on a Tuesday right before lunch. And we would take him to lunch and then he would disappear. And he walked in one day on a Tuesday right before lunch and uh, he said, do you need any chemicals and i said well russ do you have anything new and he said as a matter of interest i have a technical paper on a new product that's coming out you may find it interesting so he handed me this two-page flyer and i put it on my workbench and we went to lunch and i came back and i picked it up and looked at it and when you know i'll read it later i went and put it on my desk in my office i tell you little things change your life and one day I was in the shop and I needed to go use the bathroom and I wanted something to read. So I picked up this flyer, which twice I had picked up and I was going to throw it in the trash. You know, the cartoon where the little light bulb goes on above uh -huh. your head. I had that moment. I read that article and I went, wow. And I read it again and I went, this this is an incredible finish for guns. And at that time, it was never meant for guns. It was actually for electronic com sliding components and uh, light switches and uh, axles for windshield wipers or the applications they were experimenting with. It was very experimental at the time. And I went, I have to have this stuff. So I went to the phone. I did wash my hands and I did plug. <laughs> And I called Russ and I said, hey, Russ, you know that flyer you gave me? And he said, yeah. And I said, this guy, this Dr. Ebden, is there some way I can get a hold of him? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, he's here in the States right now. He's up in Lincoln, Nebraska, but he's leaving tonight. And I said, please, you have to hook me up with this guy. So about an hour later, I get a phone call and this guy is talking to me with some kind of a speech impediment. He was from England and he was a cockney. It was impossible to understand him. Eventually, I figured out what he was saying and that he was going back to England and he was flying through Los Angeles. And so I said, is there any way I can meet you? 
at the gate. And he said, well, sure. Well, just about the time I hang up, Gail McMillan walks in. So now you have to understand Gail McMillan got me seriously involved in the metal finishing side for firearms and taught me the rifle business. Um, he was a very, very wonderful person, a great mentor. He comes walking in and he says to me, Ravi, I need to ask you a really big favor. And I said, okay. He said, I've got, uh, I think it was 20 rifles that he had just built for one of the elite groups from Coronado. And he said, I need you, if you could make run these through your blackening process for me tonight, I can come in early tomorrow morning and assemble. They come in tomorrow afternoon to pick them up and I cannot be late. And I said, Gail, I'm going to Los Angeles. In fact, I'm literally walking out the door right now. And he said, Robbie, you got to help me. I'm in trouble. So, oh, man. So I called my wife. You don't know my wife, but she's a very, very introverted person. And I called her and I said, you need to quickly change into something nice. I need you to go to Los Angeles. And I mean, like right now. And she goes, I'm not going to Los Angeles. I said, yeah, you are. You come by the shop. I want to give you some magazine articles. And I need you to go meet this guy. He's some PhD guy. And I need you to convince him to give me a license for this new process. Because she doesn't know anything about any of this. Mm -hmm. Well, she agrees. I mean, she comes to the shop, picks up these magazines. I said, his name is Dr. Ebden. Um, listen carefully because he talks weird. Um, but you need to convince him to give me a license for this stuff. So off she goes. So about seven o'clock that night, she calls me and she says, well, they're calling my plane. I need to go because we didn't have cell phones or anything like that. She's calling me. She says, so he's agreed to give you a license, but he needs you to understand that this stuff is still in testing. They have not gone commercial with it. So I said, I don't care. Well, the next day he, or a couple of days later, he calls me from England and he says, well, I needed to talk to you about, you know, we're not ready to go commercial with this. Um, I don't know that I can tie it up. And I said, I want the United States. And he said, I can't do that. And I said, okay, give me the West in the United States. And he agreed to that. And so about six months later, he flew over here with the first samples and um, showed us basically what it was all about. And then I had to fly to England and go work in the lab for a couple of weeks to learn how to do all the testing and everything, because it was completely different to anything we'd ever done. And he and I became good buds. Very, very nice. Obviously, very smart guy. He was at that time considered the world's leading authority on electrolysticon. So um, <laughs> you have to understand my plating shop at that time was probably 20 foot by 30 foot. I mean, we had Brownells little tanks with gas burners under them. And he calls me and says, I'm coming over. I need to come and audit you and get you guys set up to start processing. Um, he walks in and he looks at my plating shop. And he goes, oh, my God. He said, if the guys back home knew what a small operation this is, there's no way in hell they would ever have given you a license. Now, I'd already paid. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know what? I tell you what, I'll make you a promise. 
Number one, I will turn this into the biggest gun finish out there, number one. Number two, I will have us on the front cover of a gun magazine within a year. And at that time, a fellow by the name of Roland Huff was the editor of SWAT magazine. He lived up in Cottonwood, Arizona, and he came down and I was showing him stuff. And I still have that magazine. Uh, we, we NP3'd an Uzi, a semi-automatic Uzi for him, and it was on the front cover of the magazine. And I still have that magazine. And I did that was six months after we actually started using the process. <coughs> And as you know, today we are aerospace certified with about 15, 16 different of the primes, the McDonnell Douglases, Boeing, Raytheon, all those companies. So NP3 was one of the luckiest. I'd like to say it was the smartest thing I've ever done, but I think I just saw the opportunity and, and I took it. And we didn't have, I had a plane, the same one that, um, Mr. Cooper used to fly in and it was sitting at the airport across the road from my shop. And there I sold that to pay for the license for MP3, never having seen the stuff, huh. never ever saw the stuff until long after I bought the license. But I just, I just knew, I just had a gut feeling. This is it. Now it was instrumental in the Apache helicopter program, right? Yeah, I have heard rumors to that effect. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, a so lot of things done. A lot of things actually. Um, so there's a rocket company that's become quite famous, and we are strictly prohibited from using their name for any kind of advertising or anything. But let's just say the guy that's running it's a really, really smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Was there anything that you would like to share tonight that I did not ask you about? No, I mean, you know, this was primarily my understanding was about the early days of gun sight. And I was there. I was a pie as Elmer. Was Elmer Keith said, hell, I was there or something. <laughs> that effect. So, yeah, I mean, it changed my life. That one comment, as I said, at the lunch table, that one comment put my life on a completely different path. If you had said anything on Monday about me coming to live in America, being on staff at Gunsight, leaving South Africa, I would have said you have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. But in a, literally in 15, 20 seconds, the whole direction of my life changed. And the same is true to an extent with Gail McMillan. Uh, he took me on a very different path. Um, Little things, little things, sitting on the toilet reading that, <laughs> that article. One of the luckiest things that ever happened to me. Thank God for flush toilets. <laughs> Anything you'd like to share about Mr. McMillan? Gail, yes. probably the most honorable man I've ever met. Gail and I, do I have time to quickly tell you how I met him? You have, you have as much time as you want. All right. So Gail, um, I was in the dental lab and we had an offer to sell and the partner that I was in with who, by the way, he and I are still best friends. Even after all these years, he still talks to me and we had an offer to sell and I wanted to go to, it was right at the time the Coopers wanted me to move up to the school and Rick wanted to go on doing a different type of technology. 
And so it was an opportunity. And at one time at Gunsight, Jeff had said, you know, I'd like to start doing a rifle class. And at this time it was all handgun. We only taught handgun at that point. And so I was doing some finishing work in my backyard for a gun company here in Phoenix or a retail store. And I went in one day and I asked the gunsmith, I said, hey, uh, there anybody in this area that's really, really good at rifle building? And he said, well, yeah, probably the greatest, one of the greatest rifle builders in the world is right here in Capri. And I said, who's that? And he said, a guy by the name of Gail McMillan. And I said, is there any way you can hook me up with him? And he said, well, I'll give you his phone number. So I called Gail and I said, you don't know me. I, anyway, I can come out and meet you. I have a proposition for you. And he said, yeah, sure. So I drove out there. So I'm not a smoker. I rock up at his house and I knock on the back door and this woman's voice says, it's open, come in. And I opened the door and it was like flying IFR. I mean, you're <laughs> in the clouds. You could barely make out the dining room table. There was two people sitting there and both of them are drinking coffee and smoking. Mm -hmm. That was how I met Gail McMillan was this shadowy figure in this cloud. <laughs> so I come in and Gail says, well, who are you? What are you? Why are you? Why are you here? And I said, well, I, I need, I teach up at a school and we're going to start a rifle program and I need to work on this, be able to work on the students' guns. And I really know nothing about rifles. I've never built a rifle I've never torn a rifle apart and Gloria his wife says well why should he teach you everything that's taken him 28 years to figure out and I said well that's a good point I tell you what you tell me what the conditions are and I will pay for an attorney to put it into a legal document uh -huh. I need the, the knowledge I'm not interested in doing this for any other reason so Gail says, well, before we get too excited about this, let me take you into the shop and show you what we do. Well, at that time, he was working out of his garage and he had a divider in the stubble garage and his son was building stocks one at a time in a mold. And Gail had his mill and his lathe on the other side. I mean, it was tiny, but he was in the process of building a shop. They lived on, a, on a, like a two or three acre property. And he was busy building the shop. And so he was showing me what, how and what he does. And that, no, no, you know, I think I can figure that out. I just need to be shown. I've never run a lathe before. I mean, so we go back into the house for another cup of coffee and a six or seven more cigarettes. And Gail says, I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. He said, I will teach you everything I know, but you number one you have to bring all your own stuff you're not learning on my customers guns and number two you have to give me your word that you will never ever bid against me if you ever get to the point where you grow and you get into building rifles that if there's a contract tendered out there and i bid on it you are excluded from bidding on that contract and I said, I will have my lawyer draw up a contract. And he put his hand up and he said, I don't need a contract. Shake my hand. We did literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of business and never, ever had a piece of paper between us. Nothing. Wow. wow. Nothing. Then LAPD was looking for rifles. 
And Gail had sold the company at this point. And he was still there as a consultant. And he came in one day. And, um, my dad had just died. And I literally was sitting at my desk trying to get on a plane to go, go back to South Africa. And Gail walked in and said, hey, I heard your dad passed away. And is there anything I can do to help? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I am bidding. So when Gail sold the company, he came in and told me he had sold it. And our agreement no longer applied. That if I wanted to bid, go ahead. So I bid on the LA contract. And... That day, I was actually working on the contract when I had to leave, and I handed it to Gail, and I said, well, I have to leave. i got to get on a plane. Um, would you check this out for me? Okay. So I understand Gail is still working for the guy that purchased the company from him. He knows exactly what they're bidding, and he knows what I'm bidding. And I deliberately underbid that thing. I actually lost money on that contract because I knew the name. Being the company that built the, the rifles, the sniper rifles for LAPD, D-Platoon, mm -hmm. you couldn't get any better advertising. For a million dollars, I couldn't get any better advertising. Right. We won the contract. Think about that. Right. We won that contract. Gail knew exactly what I was bidding on that thing. He never said a word. And that's the kind of a man he was, a very, very honorable man. Outstanding. I'm glad you took the time to share that. Yeah. So. Thank you. Well, thank you. My pleasure. That, that's what I want to accomplish with this whole show, is the, the, two, the two driving things that we like to do or document the history and the evolution of firearms and firearms training and then provide us resource for people that are currently involved in firearms training. And you know, history classes in college taught me you always go to the primary source. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I sit back now, I'm in my 50s, and if I could sit down and talk to my grandfather again now, you know, he died mm -hmm. when I was 17. And it's like, could I sit and ask him questions about World War II? He was an infantryman. Well, uh, we, all, we all go through that, Lee. Right. I mean, I, there are things about my family history that I don't know. Right. And my grandmother used to tell me about it when I was a kid. But, you know, I just wanted to go to the beach. I didn't want to hear her stories about the old country and whatever and who my great grandfather was. And now I really regret that because all my family are gone. And these are now questions in my life. And there's nobody yeah. to them. So I think we all go through that. Yeah, I was fortunate that I grew up in an extremely extended family and had access to great aunts, great uncles, and I loved to go mm. sit and listen to the stories. And I, I related better to that generation than I did my own. And I learned all that. But for some reason, I just never had those conversations with my grandfather. Uh, I had conversations with his brother, who was also in World War II. And, and he told me a lot of stuff that I've been able to go back and verify. But as I look at this whole era uh, firearms training from you know the 60s and 70s and then moving on forward you know, the evolution of the modern technique and then all the current boom of trainers out there there's just not a lot of documentation of it no and so, and so what i'm hoping to do with this story is have those conversations now and all this be documented so that it's out there 
and, you know, that's a story nobody would have ever gotten about Gail McMillan. And I very much appreciate mm -hmm. you being willing to share that with us. You bet. It was my pleasure. He was, as I say, he was a big influence, a very positive influence in my life. Uh, and and I, life. And, and I, just other little tidbits like the the safeties being made from the from the leftover steel from dental <laughs> casics. <laughs> I never would have thought that. Well, no, you know, those are all part of the day-to-day -day story, as I call them. And they're only pertinent to the person that they involve. They may be of interest to other people, but it's how we existed. It's how we got our resources and where we got our resources. You did whatever you could. Yeah. So, actually, the guy that introduced me to the lowered safety for the Browning high power was a very good friend of Bob Brown, Bob Brown from soldier of fortune magazine. Mm -hmm. So I met him. He came to South Africa in, oh gosh, it was also around 72. He came with a fellow by the name of John Donovan. And they actually started our very first halo because we, our military was doing all static line you know, 2,000 feet and out you go. Um, they introduced us to Halo. And John Donovan was a knife fighting expert. And we all carried knives because we thought we needed to and look cool. But we didn't really know how to fight with them. I mean, who'd ever thought about fighting with a knife and this guy? I mean, by the time he left, we were ready to slit throats left, right, and center. And we had it all dialed in. So um, interesting people. As I say, the gun industry has exposed me to a lot of very, very interesting people, especially on the professional level. Yeah. Uh, I can echo that. It, it is, uh, it's a very interesting group of people that we walk among. Yep. Uh, yes. very, very interesting. Well, sir, I thank you for taking uh, an hour and a half tonight to sit and share and stories and of course we had a phone conversation last week and i appreciate you uh, for that um uh, thanks to freddie for setting this up I, I really would love to hear the phone call that freddie's going to get after this because that might be fun <laughs> <laughs> i can assure you it'll entail a lot of really really foul language <laughs> well just remember you get to provide a list of questions for him <laughs> no freddie's a good guy so thanks for, to Freddie for, for setting up this introduction. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation tonight, and I appreciate you for coming on. All right, Lee. Thank you very much. Good luck thank, to you. Thank you. And to the audience, we know that your most important resource is your time, and thank you for choosing to spend it with us. <laughs>